Luke 3, 1 to 22. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrach of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrach of Euteria, and Trachonitis and Lasanias Tetrach of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe shall be laid to the roots of the trees. And every trees that do not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't export money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Well, good morning. Um, this is the start of a new series in the book of Luke uh, and the series is called The King and His Kingdom. And this series is actually going to take us all the way through to Easter next year. 
Uh, so we're going to be spending some considerable time in the Gospel of Luke. And actually, I think that's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to this. So it's called The King and His Kingdom. And last term in the Naturally Supernatural series, we talked a lot about the kingdom of God and the importance of understanding the kingdom and bringing the kingdom and all its characteristics into the lives of others. And the Gospel of Luke has a lot to teach us about the kingdom of God as we see Jesus proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom wherever he goes with the call on his followers, on us, to do the same. And we're starting with that passage that we just heard read in in Luke 3 and we'll cover aspects of Luke 1 and 2 at Christmas. But here in Luke 3, this is just before Jesus really bursts onto the scene in his public ministry. And so it's a time of preparing for the kingdom. And that's what this sermon is called, preparing for the kingdom. And I think in this passage that we just heard, we really get the heart of the gospel message, the good news that offers access to this kingdom. Now, in the West, uh, we've had a tendency over many, many years to try to kind of separate out the spiritual realm from the so-called real world. Because people don't like the idea that God, if he exists, that God would have something to say about the real world and how we live in it, how we behave, how we live our lives, what is right, what is wrong. It was the Labour politician, Alistair Campbell, who famously said, we don't do God. And it's like he's saying, you know, spiritual stuff is over there for those people who are into that, fine. But we are dealing with real issues and that stuff over there, that has nothing to do with how we live our lives. Now, Luke, in the way he reports events, he he simply doesn't allow us to come to that conclusion. So he starts uh, this passage in Luke 3 with in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, what's that about? Here's the thing, you don't get this kind of thing in any other religion. This is unique to Christianity this kind of thing. Luke is saying, he's being very clear, that in this particular place and at this particular time, God spoke and he spoke to John. In a particular point of history, in a particular point in time and space, God spoke because he is the God of history and he's the God who is in human history. And we may want to keep God out of space and out of time, but God created space and time. Psalm 24 tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, that actually there's nothing that is outside of his sovereignty. And so that artificial divide between the physical material world and God, spiritual world, faith, that divide was irreversibly crossed by Jesus, as Luke's already described in chapters one and two with the birth of Jesus. God made flesh, the coming king who has a kingdom in which he rules and he reigns, and he calls the shots. And then Luke also wants us to know, he wants to make it clear what kind of king this is that John is preparing the people for. So he includes this quote from the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth and all people will see God's salvation. 
Well, what's all that about? What does that mean, talking about paths and, and roads? Well, in those days, you, you didn't have many paved roads. You would have rutted tracks formed where people walked and drove their carts. The only person who would build something close to being a road would be a king. And not just any king either, one of the top kings, a king who had a lot of wealth, a lot of power and a lot of prestige. So when they would go on a journey, they would send out their heralds and their engineers to, to gather people, to help and to prepare the, the king's highway, to make it smooth, to get rid of boulders that most people would have to go around or to fill in any gullies and undulations in the road that most people would just have to go down into and it would be a bit of a bumpy ride. They would make the road wide, they'd make it straight, and they'd make it smooth. Why? Because the king was coming. But if you look at the words in Isaiah, well, it's clear that this, this is for another level of king, because it, it's not just getting rid of boulders, it's getting rid of mountains. It's not just gullies and undulations in the road, it's valleys being filled in. This, this is on a different scale altogether. So this is for the ultimate king. This is for the king of kings. And if you read the passage in Isaiah 40, it's preparing the way of the Lord, and Lord is capital letters Lord, which in the Old Testament means God himself. God himself is coming. This is not someone else he's sending, he's coming himself, the one who's coming to put everything right himself. And if John is the voice in the wilderness, it means that Jesus is God himself. So Luke is telling his readers that in, in no uncertain terms. John the Baptist is preparing the way for this coming king, for this Messiah, but that this king would be God himself. That's the king who is coming and he brings his kingdom, he brings his rule and his reign with him. And the word of the Lord that came to John was all about a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's how you receive this coming king. That's how you prepare for this coming kingdom. It's how you respond to the gospel, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Peter said the same thing in Acts chapter two, when the people wanted to know how to respond to what he had told them about Jesus. How do we respond to this, to this good news? And Peter says very clearly, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The same three things. Jesus himself, in his final words to his disciples before ascending to heaven, he talked about baptizing people in Matthew 28. And in Luke 24, he talked about preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. So let's just take a look at those three elements of baptism, repentance, and forgiveness of sins and just unpack them a little bit. So first of all, very briefly on, on baptism. John commanded baptism for those who wanted to receive this coming king. Peter commanded baptism for those who wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus himself commanded baptism and he was even baptized himself as we heard in that passage. And they were pretty direct about this. I mean, they're very un-British, surprisingly enough. I mean, John starts off by calling everyone a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes, you know, he's not very seeker sensitive, is he? And we would tend to invite people to consider baptism, but you know, no pressure, come to our exploring baptism session to find out a bit more. And you know, I'm not saying that's wrong, it, it's culturally appropriate for us. But if you'll allow me to be very un-British for just a moment, if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized as a believer by full immersion, obey God and get baptized. There we go, can't be more direct than that. 
obey God and get baptized. And we're hoping to have a baptism morning on the 3rd of October. So let us know if you want to be part of that. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and so do we. But I want to focus in on repentance. Repentance, because without repentance, well, then you shouldn't get baptized. Without repentance, baptism is hypocrisy. John tells the crowds that have come to see him to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, he's saying to them, look, don't come to me to get baptized if you haven't repented. So what does repentance really mean? Well, John gives some examples of what it might look like for different people. So share your shirts, share your food with those who don't have those things. That's good things to do. Don't cheat people if you're a tax collector. Don't abuse power if you're a soldier. He outlines some of the things that it might look like, but it's important to note that those things are the fruit of repentance, not repentance itself. So repentance is not a change of behavior. Now, there will always be fruit of genuine repentance. So if you say you've repented, but there's no change in behavior at all in your life, then you haven't repented. Simple as that. But repentance really means a change of mind and a change of heart. And John talks about the ax being laid to the root of the trees and trees that don't produce fruit will be cut down. It's about your roots. It's, it's what your roots are going into. It's where your heart is, where your heart is, is turned towards. So this crowd of people, they've come out to be baptized by John, but he calls them a brood of vipers. And there's a clear link here with the, the serpent in Genesis who convinced Adam and Eve that really they couldn't trust God. That's what it was about. That was the lie that he convinced them of. You can't really trust God. And we know the disastrous actions that resulted from that. Now, John is effectively calling these people, he's saying you're a brood of vipers. He's effectively calling them children of the devil with that lie of the serpent still rooted deeply in their hearts that their trust is not in God. And so repentance has to do with where their trust is placed. The real problem is not so much what they're doing in their lives, it's why they're doing it, what's behind it. Because you can do lots of good things and still not be trusting God. That's relying on your own righteousness. It's relying on your own goodness, which is never going to be good enough. No matter how nice a person, how decent a person you might be, none of us can rely on our own righteousness to be right with God. Romans 3.23 is very clear that it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All no exceptions, all have sinned. So John is telling all of them that they need to repent and be baptized. And that's pretty shocking for the crowd to hear because for the Jews, they were no strangers to baptism, but baptism was for a Gentile, a non-Jew who converted to Judaism. And it was necessary because they needed cleansing from the immoral life that they had lived as a Gentile, but it shouldn't be necessary for a Jew. But John is saying, no, you're all lost. All of you, you all need to repent and be baptized. Don't, don't talk to me, he says. Don't talk to me about having Abraham as your father. You can't rely on your Jewishness for salvation. You need to be changed in your heart towards God. You need to repent and get right with God and be ready to receive the coming king. So repentance means that your heart turns completely towards God. Your heart becomes oriented completely towards God and you Therefore, rely on him for all that you need, for the, for the affirmation and acceptance that you need in your life and for the significance you need and for the security that you need, that those things come first from God and not from any other things that you may be relying on. And of course, that's an ongoing journey. 
there is a sense in which repentance, being born again, is a moment, a definite moment, and it's a supernatural moment because we're not born with our hearts inclined towards God. But it's a moment when your life changes and you receive Christ. You receive this king into your life and you give your life over to him, submitting it all to him. And you enter into the kingdom of God and into a new life. There is that moment that happens, but there's also an ongoing daily repentance that needs to happen. A daily turning of your heart towards God. So I remember the moment when I was born again, when I was 17, and and it was a powerful moment. I knew that everything in my life had changed in an instant. My purposes, my reasons for living changed. And all I could think about in those moments was Jesus and his extraordinary love for me and, and wanting to do whatever he called me to do. But it doesn't take long to see uh, just how easily your heart can grow cold and all the other things that are competing for your heart and how easy it is to turn your heart away from God in spite of being saved, in spite of belonging to him. And by the way, if you belong to him, well, I don't believe he ever lets you go. It's just his grace towards you in those moments when you're not turned towards him. In fact, it's all grace. All of this is grace because none of us deserve anything from God. So are you truly relying on God? Are you fully trusting him for all your needs? Now, our emotions can be a good barometer of when we're not doing that, of when we need to repent and realign our hearts. So if you're feeling particularly, you know, abnormally despondent or bitter or fearful or anxious or, or angry, well, it's often because something is more important than God in that moment. Something else is king. Something else has your heart. So there have been several moments over the last 18 months where I felt a depth of despondency and I've I've had to ask myself, why? Why am I feeling like that? What, What is that about? What is contributing to that? And, you know, it might be that I realize it's just that things, they just feel out of my control. And I guess we've all felt like that at times. But but knowing that, I can then repent. I can turn my heart back towards the one who is in control. And I can choose to trust him and, and know his peace. Or it might be that I'm worrying about how, uh, how something may be a key decision or, or a sermon, how that might reflect on me. Because, you know, sometimes I care too much about what others think. Or I look to the praises of people for affirmation and security. And so knowing that, I need to repent and turn my heart back to the only one whose opinion of me really, really matters. Now, receiving praise, receiving encouragement from people, that's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. The problem comes when we turn good things into ultimate things. So it might be the praises of people, or it might be things like your career, or our families, our friends, sex, relationships, leisure, all sorts of things that when they take the place of God as the primary source of our sense of significance, our sense of security, our sense of acceptance, then we've turned a good thing into an ultimate thing, but something that was never designed to be an ultimate thing. We've turned our hearts towards a different king. And the problem is that it's a king that will eventually let you down. So if you want to receive the king and you want to keep in close relationship with him, you have to repent. Put your trust fully in him. But then once you've done that, you do also have to obey because he's the king. You obey the king. And I explained before from that prophecy in Isaiah what kind of king this is. This is the king of kings. This is God. And so we are to let him be God and obey him. 
because the king doesn't adapt to your roads. Your roads adapt to him. Again, there has to be fruit. There has to be fruit from repentance, from genuine repentance. An apple tree produces apples, and that's how you know it's an apple tree. True repentance will result in fruit and obedience and growing in godliness. We follow his roadmap and not our own, even when at times that can lead us in some pretty uncomfortable places. And our obedience to him is not conditional. You know, I'll obey you if, if, if you get me that job or if you give me that husband or that wife. No, 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 he is God. He is God. And if our lives are oriented towards him through repentance, then we will live lives of obedience to him. So are you yielding to God? Have you ever yielded to God? Who is in charge of your life? And what does repentance and obedience mean for you right now? What do those things mean for you? Now, John, in this passage, John the Baptist, he's at pains to make sure they understand that he himself is not the Messiah. He's not the coming king. He, he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, actually, that fire is referring to judgment. John refers to fire three times in this passage, and the other two are both clearly to do with judgment. So trees that don't bear fruit being cut down and thrown into the fire. The chaff from the wheat being burnt up with unquenchable fire. The clear implication is that those who believe and have repented will be baptized, will be drenched with the Holy Spirit. Good thing. But the non-repentant, those who reject the message, will receive fire and judgment. And they won't be able to stand up under that judgment. And so these images that we have in this passage of wheat and chaff, trees that produce fruit, trees that produce no fruit, the spirit or fire, there is a fundamental difference between someone who has turned to God in repentance and someone who hasn't. Not because someone who's repented is a better person than someone who hasn't. As I said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, the difference is what or who you put your trust in. Now, this, this is why the gospel is such good news. It really is good news. Even those bits that talk about judgment that we might feel a bit uncomfortable with, you know, winnowing forks and wheat and chaff and fire and all of that kind of thing. We don't necessarily like those things, but it is good news. Think of it like this. If your house is on fire, it's actually is good news to you if someone wakes you up and says, there's still time, I'm going to show you how to get out. The gospel necessarily contains the warning of God's judgment for our sin and for your sin if you are unrepentant. But the gospel also offers the way out. It offers forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that offer is extended to all. It's not to one particular ethnic group. It, it's not to those who are rich or wealthy. It's not if your good works outweigh your bad works. That would be terrible news. I mean, we would all be completely sunk, totally condemned if that was the case. But the good news is that the forgiveness of sins is offered to all who will receive it and all who will come in repentance to God, trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf to pay the penalty of your sin. You know, you've got to be aware of the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of God's judgment 
to appreciate the magnitude and the depth of his forgiveness and his love for you. And that's exactly what I experienced in that moment I described earlier of being born again. I became in that moment, I became so aware of the sinfulness of my heart and how offensive that was to God, even though in the eyes of the world, I was a, a good person. But at the same time as seeing that, I also experienced his indescribable love for me. I was flooded with his love for me, even for a sinner like me. It was, it was amazing. The point of repentance is not just to grieve your failures. It's not to coerce you into obedience. It's to receive God's forgiveness, his undeserved forgiveness and to enter into a new life that is full of God's grace and full of his love and full of his forgiveness that actually makes obedience to him a joy, a privilege and not a grind. It is good news, it's really good news. Now I'm grateful to Andrew Wilson for this illustration. When the children were young, the occasion would sometimes arise to have to tell them off for something, which would then be followed by tears, um, their tears, not mine, um, but then once everything had calmed down, you would talk with them and you'd ask if they'd understood what they'd done wrong. You'd get them to say sorry, but it didn't end there either, because then what you would do is you'd have a hug. You'd have a hug to reassure them everything's OK. Everything's OK between us. All is good. What happened has been dealt with. It's in the past and you love them. It's a hug of reassurance. It's a hug of reconciliation. Now, the tears are important to understand the wrong that had been done. But the aim is never to stay in the tears. The aim is the hug. And that's really the aim of God for your life. It's the hug, it's the reconciliation that once you've become aware of your sin, that's not where you stay, but that through repentance, you can come to the Father and you can know his affection and his love and his forgiveness for you, for his child. It's just beautiful. And it is glorious. And we're left with this wonderful picture of Jesus. Jesus praying in the water following his baptism. And it says, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came down from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And what happened to Jesus is the same for you and for me, when we come in repentance, he wants to drench you. He wants to drench you in his spirit. He wants you to know that you are his beloved son, his beloved daughter, that you are united with Christ. Your sins have been washed away. You are completely forgiven. You are one of his people adopted into his family and he loves you so, so much. It was for the joy set before him. That's you and me, the joy set before him that he endured the cross. At the heart of the kingdom of God is love and forgiveness, because at the heart of the king is love and forgiveness. John, John the Baptist, he's preparing the people to receive this king, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's still the same deal. It's the same. If you want to receive him today, you can repent, get baptized, know the forgiveness of sins. And if you have received him, well then stay close to him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Keep your heart turned towards him and just rejoice again in that forgiveness, that wonderful, undeserved forgiveness that you have received. Amen, amen. <laughs>